are so awesome and so happy to be here with you today. Why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1. We're going to continue the short series that I started last Sunday. We're going to do a very brief series that will take us just up till the Christmas holiday on the subject, the people of God. Uh, there were a couple of insider names that were used to describe the early followers of Jesus. Sometimes they were referred to as people of the way. Some of you have heard that before, that early followers of Christ were called members of the way. But sometimes they were also just called the people. Now, I know you're in Acts 1, but let me quickly read the theme verse that I started with last Sunday. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Have you ever thought that it's kind of an interesting historical practice that we have uh, embraced of allowing condemned prisoners the opportunity to speak some final words or give a final speech before their execution. I know that the idea of capital punishment stirs up all kinds of emotions and, and all kinds of strong feelings, but, but it's become almost an inalienable right throughout human history to give a condemned prisoner an opportunity to either express their guilt or their innocence. So sometimes a condemned prisoner, in their final words, they will express remorse and they'll get up and say, I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me for these crimes that I've committed? Now, sometimes, of course, people don't plead their guilt. They plead their innocence. Sometimes people will get up and they'll say, listen, I know I was convicted, but I'm innocent and, and you're about to execute an innocent person. You know, at other times, people don't plead either their guilt or their innocence, they'll maybe make a political statement. Or in cases of martyrdom, sometimes people make religious affirmations in their final words. Sometimes people make a statement to their loved ones, or they'll try and say something memorable or, or, or humorous. Sometimes people just curse and scream in those moments, and sometimes people just cry. It was in around the mid-1600s when people began to become fascinated with the idea of final words or, or famous final speeches, and, and people became so intrigued with capturing uh, final utterances that they began to write down and then publish the last words of condemned prisoners, and then they broadened it to include publishing the final words of famous people. And we've continued that practice to today. Let me read just a couple of uh, famous last words to you. Some of these are just um, a little bit, they're just kind of interesting. But do you remember reading about Archimedes, you know, the famous mathematician? Uh, this is Dr. Rick Simon's hero, probably. Um, Rick's a college math teacher. But um, uh, Archimedes literally gave his life for a math equation. Um, he was killed during the Punic Wars. You remember when Hannibal marched the elephants across the Alps to attack Rome? Well, during that war, a soldier came into Archimedes' office to, to take him away, and he was in the middle of trying to solve this intense math equation, so kind of a mad scientist moment. And the soldier tried to pull him away, and Archimedes said, stand away, fellow, from my diagram. 
and he refused to stop working on math, and it, it infuriated the soldiers, so he whipped out his sword and he killed Archimedes, gave his life for a math equation. That's a, that's a passion for mathematics. Karl Marx's last words, I don't find very inspiring. Karl Marx said, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Leonardo da Vinci, sounds like an overachiever with his final words, he said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Boy, the Mona Lisa could have been so much better if he wasn't such a slacker, I guess, but... Uh, Marie Antoinette, Queen of France. If you remember, of course, she was beheaded as she was climbing the steps up to the guillotine. Kind of a grim subject matter this morning, I guess. Sorry, making so light of it here. But she stepped on the foot of her executioner, and she said, oh, pardonnez-moi, monsieur. So her last words were, please forgive me, I'm so sorry. And Napoleon Bonaparte, as he was fading, he said four things. He said, France, army, head of the army, Josephine. Uh, Thomas Edison was in a coma right up until the moment of his death. And right before he died, Thomas Edison woke up and he looked at his wife and he said, it is very beautiful out there. George Orwell, anybody read 1984? I don't know what his final words were, but his final written words, I just thought this was funny. His final written words were, at 50, everyone has the face they deserve. <laughs> How many of you are over 50? Let's just look at your mug for a second and see what you deserve. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, this was the fellow who wrote the Sherlock Holmes books, he died at 71 in his garden. I think he died of a heart attack because he, they say that he clutched his chest and, and, and right before he died, he looked at his wife and he said, you are wonderful. <laughs> um, my dad's last words to me were the words, son, I'm proud of you. And I've shared this with you. My dad's been gone now about seven months. Um, I did not know those would be his final words. My dad wasn't sick. There wasn't anything terribly wrong with him. Um, we had just gone to their house for dinner, and Jessica and I and the girls were missing him so much right now. But we'd gone to dinner at my parents' house, and as we were leaving, my dad followed us to the car, and he, he just bent down, put his hand on my back, and he said, hey, son, I'm proud of you. And, and I had no idea those would be the final words he would say to me. And that actually raises, raises a worthwhile observation that we never know when our words will become our final words. So we need to make sure that we're saying the right words to the right people before our words become our final words. But I want us to look in Acts chapter 1 at Jesus' final words. Jesus said a couple of things in his final speech to his followers that have become prescriptive and definitive for the people of God. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has finished his mission. He has embraced the sins of the world. He squared off against death and won. He knocked it out. He defeated the, the greatest enemy, which is death, when he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And now he's about to commission the, the new leaders of this newly formed people of God. Historically, up to this point, ethnic Israel had been the people of God, but now Jesus is about to inaugurate a new era of what it means to be a part of the people of God. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, said, in my former book, Theophilus, um, I heard Lana Varela had her baby, 
Am I supposed to say that or is that super private? <laughs> don't tell anyone. I don't think they named the baby yet, but they had a boy. Theophilus? Might work, I guess, but I think they're hung up on J names in the Varela household. But Theophilus, uh, do you want me to tell you about the birth? No, I'm just, <laughs> I wasn't there. I'm just kidding. I, I'm, um, so Luke wrote Luke and Acts to this fellow named Theophilus, and he said, I wrote about all of the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And I think that language is very interesting. I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. He wouldn't have written about what he had begun to do unless there was some more to do. He could have said, hey, Theophilus, in my former book, I wrote about all the things that Jesus Christ did until the day he was taken up to heaven. But that's not what he wrote. He said, I wrote about all of the things that Jesus began to do, which suggests to these new, le new leaders of the, the, the people of God that there is more to be done. The mission that Jesus began is still underway. Verse 3, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them, and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And then we come to verse 8, and we come to Jesus' final words. And in his final words, he promises his followers two things. He promises them power and a mission. In verse 8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and then a cloud hid him from their sight. So in his famous last words, Jesus Christ gives his followers uh, the promise of power so that they could fulfill the mission that he himself began to do but was still underway in the earth. Now, verse 15 tells us that there were about 120 people gathered for this moment. 120 people. This whole Christianity thing that we're a part of today began with 120 people who stayed together and waited and prayed for this power that Jesus had promised. This happened in around 30-ish AD. 120 people. Within a matter of weeks, there were thousands of new believers added to the people of God. Within about a year, this thing had spread so exponentially that persecution arose and Christians began to be hunted throughout the Roman Empire. But every time Christianity was persecuted and Christians scattered, they, they talked about Jesus. And they lived these compelling, extraordinary lives, <clears throat> so much so that Christianity just spread all around the world. And by 313 AD, the Roman emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. Christianity spread so pervasively, it actually had spread all the way into Caesar's own household. The Roman emperor himself was influenced by Christianity. 
And in 313 AD, the Roman emperor said, it's now, it's illegal to persecute Christians. Christians are safe. It was okay to be Christian. In 380 AD, the Roman empire, and remember, the Roman empire executed Jesus, instigated the persecutions of Christians, and was the leading superpower of the day. In 380 AD, the Roman Empire embraced Christianity as its official state religion. Can you believe that? 120 people hang out praying for power, and by 380, so a few centuries later, it's the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Rome fell in 476 AD. But when Rome fell, Christianity continued to spread. And today, 2,000 years later, there are more than 2.2 billion Christians in the world. And this movement started with a handful of people who gathered to fast and pray and wait for power on Pentecost Sunday. Let me read to you and let's walk through how that happened. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says... When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. So after the time Jesus was, was executed and then rose from the dead, 50 days had occurred, and that's the moment that they're in right now. And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. It probably wasn't the easiest thing in the world for these biblical authors to describe these supernatural occurrences. I mean, how do you take a supernatural something and explain it in a way that ac accurately conveys it? It wasn't a wind that filled the house, but it was kind of like a violent blowing wind. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Fire wasn't actually falling on them, but they saw what seemed to be like flickering uh, columns of fire that descended on top of people's heads. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Uh, did any of you see the miniseries A.D., The Bible Continues? Did any of you see that? It came out a couple of years ago. I think it was Mark Burnett that produced it. I want to show you the scene from A.D. where they depict this moment that happened. It's, it's kind of a compelling scene. Of course, we don't know exactly how it went down, and we, we don't know exactly from the text how many people were in the room when it occurred. And you'll notice in this scene that the disciples who are praying, they keep repeating the Lord's Prayer over and over and over, and we don't know that that's the way they prayed. So we don't know how accurate, but it's, it's kind of a compelling uh, depiction of this moment when the early church was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's watch this scene. John, wake up, all of you. Mm. Wake Come. What are we doing? We're praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Thank you. 
Isaiah mentioned our pre-service prayer meeting that happens on Sunday mornings at 8.30. That happens every week. So you don't want to miss out on that. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Why would that have happened? Why would that be the first thing that happens to the church when they're infused with power from the Holy Spirit? Well, because... Jesus had promised them power to go to the nations with this love and this message of Jesus Christ. So this was the sign, I've given you what you need to reach the nations. I've, I've called you to reach the nations, now I've empowered you to speak to the nations. And then it just so happened in the next verse, verse 5, that there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven present because this was the feast of Pentecost. At this point in history, the Jewish people, uh, yes, Israel was their homeland, but they had been scattered into many different nations of the known world. And yet, even though they were scattered globally, they still tried when they were able to return to some of these pilgrimage feasts. And so these were devout Jews from all over the nations. And so Jesus uh, says, I'm going to give you power to reach the nations. He gives them language to speak to the nations. And then when they look around, the nations are all around them. This is remarkable. Have any of you ever traveled internationally? I'm actually leaving for Kenya in less than two weeks now. I've been asked to teach in a Bible college for pastors. I'm going to be teaching classes on preaching, conflict resolution, and Christian spirituality. But when you're traveling internationally and you hear somebody speaking your language or, or even a language that you recognize, it's so refreshing. I was in China a couple of years ago and I had gotten so used to the Mandarin dialect that near the end of my trip, I was in a hotel lobby and these two African men were walking through the lobby speaking French. And I got so happy, I just kind of blurted out, ah, salut, comment ça va? And these guys smiled and were like, bonjour, partout français, do you speak French? And then I was like, no, that's... <laughs> That's, that's all I know, but, um, but, but I knew it was French, and, and it reminded me of high school, so it, it was fun for a moment, but um, we, we don't know exactly how this Acts 2 thing went down, but we do know 
that while this boisterous worship service is happening and they start praising God in the languages of the nations, people were passing by and somebody was like, wait a minute, that, that, I think that's Italian. I, I think I'm hearing Egyptian from that room. That They're praising God in the language of my hometown. In verse six, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that we hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Asia, Egypt, uh, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And in verse 13, though, some, however, made fun of them, and they said, they have had too much wine. And that's so dumb. I mean, like that happens when you have too much to drink. I had a little too much last night, and I started speaking German. <laughs> I didn't even know I spoke German. <laughs> Jess had one too many last night, and the Norwegian just started pouring out of her. <laughs> but no, Peter has to tell them what's going on. He stood up in verse 14, fellow Jews. And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And then Peter proceeds to preach about Jesus. And then in verse 41, it tells us that 3,000 people believed his message and responded to Jesus and were added to the roster of the people of God. Not a bad opening sermon. Not a bad kickoff moment for the church. That's how this whole thing began with Jesus' famous words promising power so the people could fulfill the mission that he had begun to do. Power and mission. Those are the portion of the people of God. And, and should I just remind all of us here that we are the people of God? Now, I realize there might be people here who might say, hold on, time out. You know, I'm, I'm in church today, but I'm exploring religion or I'm checking out Christianity, but I don't know that I want to be identified as part of the people of God. That's great. And that's awesome that you're here. And if you do decide to join the people of God, what you will find is that you have been grafted into a people who are on a mission. The power is still available and the mission is still underway. However, we have done something tragic in the American church. We have separated the power from the mission, but then we've told people they still have to go do the mission. We have underemphasized the person, the work, the power of the Holy Spirit, but then we've told people, but you still have to go to the nations. You need to tell people about Jesus. We call that witnessing. You, you need to tell them of the story of the cross and the gospel. We call that evangelism. Evangelism or witnessing was never supposed to happen separate from the power. 
Jesus even told them, don't go anywhere. Wait until you have the power. And then once you have the power, I want you to go. But we have separated the power from the mission. We bring people to church. We tell them about Jesus. We teach them. And then we tell them, now you need to go out and tell people about Jesus. It's overwhelming. It's intimidating. It stirs up our fear and our insecurity. And so we don't do it. And then we feel guilty about it. And then we just kind of move on to other things. And we have this big, awkward reality in the church that we've underemphasized the power, but we're lamenting why the mission isn't going better. You know, the early church did not have a witnessing program. When you study church history and you read the writings of the early fathers, they didn't have an evangelism program. They didn't have a marketing campaign or a church growth strategy. Do you know what they had? They had a let's all get filled with the Holy Spirit program. They had a let's get empowered by the Spirit of God program. And then once they were empowered, they naturally became his living witnesses. And the the New Testament word for witness in the Greek language refers to an eyewitness or an ear witness. In other words, I have seen God do some things that has changed everything. Or I've heard some things from God that has made all the difference in my life. I want to show you something that I find so fascinating from Peter's first sermon. And I think we sometimes completely overlook this fact when we read this passage. In verse 41, we learn that 3,000 people respond to this one sermon from Peter. But you know what that was not? That was not equivalent to me setting up a little bench in a mall or at the entrance of a pier and preaching Jesus to all these strangers who are passing by and then having such a powerful moment that thousands of people who had never heard of Jesus say, oh my God, that's amazing. I have to give my life to this Jesus person that I'm hearing about for the first time. That is not what was happening in this passage. Peter was not doing cold call evangelism in this moment. He wasn't trying to ask strangers to respond to this thing that they had never even heard of before. Now, there's a place for that, but that's not what this was. Listen to verse 5 again. There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. In verse 14, when Peter addressed the crowd, what did he say? Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. A major portion of Peter's audience were people who lived in Jerusalem. Five weeks. No, what's, how many weeks is 40, is 50 days? Seven weeks. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Seven weeks earlier, Jesus was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. People who lived in Jerusalem knew all about Jesus. This was a few weeks later. Um, Israel is a very small country. The entire nation of Israel is less than half the size of San Bernardino County. There is absolutely no question whatsoever that a major portion of Peter's audience had already heard Jesus himself teach. There were people in Peter's audience, no doubt, who had been healed miraculously by Jesus. It's very, very likely that there were people listening to Peter in this moment who had actually eaten the bread that Jesus multiplied. 
on, on multiple occasions, he multiplied a few loaves of bread and he kept spreading it and his disciples kept giving it and then there was more. They fed thousands and thousands of people. Do you know what? It's even possible that there were people in this crowd that had had demonic, satanic power that was influencing them broken off of their lives by the ministry of Jesus Christ. These were not people that were completely oblivious to all of this. These were people that God was already working on. These were people in process. Some of them had been pondering Jesus for months, maybe even multiple years. And so when Peter gets up in this moment and he's empowered by the Spirit and he starts preaching, okay, all the pieces start falling into place. And suddenly there's this big gigantic aha moment and it all makes sense. And I'm seeing it clearly for the first time. And now I'm ready to believe and I'm ready to follow. See, that's what we have been called to. We have not been called to go out and try and convince strangers to believe something that sounds crazy to them. We have been called to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and then love people enough to identify where the Holy Spirit is at work and then partner with him there. And that's vastly different from we all feel guilty because we're not telling more people about Jesus. Listen, you do not have to generate a ministry moment. You don't have to go to work tomorrow and figure out, how do I generate something here? No, the Spirit of God has been working long before you showed up. The Spirit of God has been working on people's hearts long before you ever started working for that company or that school or that office. Our job isn't to generate something. Our job is to identify what's happening and step into that moment there. There's a really great story um, in Acts chapter 8 when Philip one of these earlier members of the people, is full of the Holy Spirit. And there's this chariot entourage that's passing by, and the Spirit tells Philip, go walk alongside that chariot. And I don't think that was a super spiritual God spoke to him audibly. I think it's like what happens to you. He was just kind of inspired, kind of just prompted, hey, go check that out. He walks alongside the chariot, and the craziest thing is happening. There's an Ethiopian man. He was a, a royal official in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. He's sitting in a chariot reading the Jewish Old Testament. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. And he's reading out loud a messianic prophecy, so a prediction about Jesus. And Philip hears him reading, so here's how Philip evangelized. He got full of the Spirit, he followed the prompting, and then he goes, uh, what are you reading? And he goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the man's like, no, how do I understand this unless somebody explains it to me? Is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? So Philip climbs up into the chariot with him. And then verse 35 of Acts 8 tells us that beginning with that scripture, and I like that. He didn't take him back to the book of Genesis to try and explain how the whole universe began. He didn't say, well, hold on to that thought. Let me explain to you philosophically why God makes more sense than atheism. That's not, that wasn't his approach. It says, beginning in that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He just started meeting him in the exact place where the spirit was already working. And then the, this man is so intrigued. They talk for a while. And then as the chariot's progressing, he sees a little pool of water. And this Ethiopian official says, hey, there's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? And Philip's like, uh, nothing, I guess, let's do it. Now, if Philip had woken up in the morning and somebody said, Philip, 
you need to go find an Ethiopian official and baptize him. Oh my God, how overwhelming is that? We couldn't do that. But if somebody says, Philip, I want you to get full of the Spirit of God today. And when the Spirit prompts you, I want you to obey. And if the Spirit opens a door, I want you to step through that door. And then let's just see what happens. Wow, what an adventure. What a shift. What a difference. Listen, I'm almost finished here, but listen, the mission is not optional for the people of God. Now, sometimes in American Christianity, we have made it optional. Here's what American Christianity says. God loves you, and he wants to forgive you of your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. And he wants to help you live a really awesome life. And listen, that's true. God loves you. He does offer you forgiveness through the person of Jesus and through what Jesus did on the cross. He wants to roll guilt off of your shoulders. He wants to give you a fresh start. And listen, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you get filled with the Holy Spirit. It begins when you step into the life of God now. And, 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 and it's not all about you. There's a mission to engage in. <clears throat> See, sometimes American Christianity is kind of just a God-endorsed version of the American dream. You know, sometimes American Christianity, and I'm not down on the church. The church is my absolute passion. But sometimes, do you know what we do in church? Probably here at Grace. Sometimes we just sprinkle a little holy water on our five-year plan. And it almost feels like the whole goal is just to be successful and happy. And that is not the complete message. We're here for mission. In fact, without mission, you will never live the satisfying, fulfilled, invigorating life that you were called to. Stressed out, overcommitted, too busy, marginless living shrinks the human soul. There, there's, there's an element of eternal life and abundant life that you'll never touch unless you're willing to engage with the mission. We have been grafted into a people who are on a mission. And listen, it doesn't have to look like Peter preaching at Pentecost or Philip racing down a chariot and hopping in and explaining the scripture. Here's the thing about this mission. It looks like the power of God meeting the needs of a person through the uniqueness of how God made you. So for some of you, the mission's going to look like adoption. It's going to look like fostering a child. It's going to look like caring for special needs children. It's going to look like a brilliant philosophical debate because you're an apologist with a keen mind and you can reason on that level. It's going to look like serving. It's going to look like bringing food for homeless people. It's going to look like just loving your coworker until they start saying, why are you so nice to me? And, and why, do you, why do you care? But, but it doesn't have to be you know, uh, packaged a certain way. It just needs to look like you loving people enough to say, God, fill me with your spirit and I will go. 